My name is Joe Zakovich. I teach here at the seminary. I teach in the Old Testament department. I teach the languages. So Hebrew, Aramaic, Akkadian, the lesser known languages, Ugaritic. Um, so those are the ones I teach. I also teach exegesis courses and then a few other courses related to the Old Testament. But that is primarily my responsibility. And because of this, we're in the Old Testament today. And because of this, I will also make some references to Hebrew. I uh, hope that you will enjoy those parts of the talk as well. Uh, now, now, even though our talk is based in the Old Testament, we will make reference to the New Testament. We will see how these passages are relevant for and how they relate to the uh, New Testament as well. But we will spend most of our time in the Old Testament. Let me invite you to pray with me right now, and then we'll begin this time together with uh, asking God to bless us together. Lord, as we come before you and as we stand before your scriptures, before the word that you have revealed to us, we stand in reverence, in fear, Lord, with a desire to study your scriptures accurately, to analyze it precisely, to understand it properly, to apply it to our lives, to walk away seeing how great you are, to walk away loving you more, Lord, to walk away looking forward to your coming, or to walk away worshiping you more and to seeking to be more like Christ. Lord, I pray that as we begin to study these two passages today, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would bless our time, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, Lord, soften my heart as I speak, Lord, soften the, soften the hearts of everyone here who will listen to this, Lord, not because I'm speaking, but because this is your word. Lord, so I pray that you would bless our time together. In the end, Lord, I do pray that your name be glorified and nothing else. Lord, I pray that we would walk away here worshiping you more. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and our Messiah. Amen. Well, as you can see from the title, um, the title of this message is Preaching Genesis 3.15 and Psalm 110 intertextually. I mentioned this to a uh, wonderful Christian brother of mine the other day, and he said to me, I know Genesis 3.15, and I know Psalm 110, but what do these two passages have to do with one another? And this is the question that I'd like to address in this talk. Are Genesis 3.15 and Psalm 110 related? Can we preach them together? Or do we have to preach them together? As we look at these questions and these two passages, I do invite you to turn to both of them. Turn to Genesis 3.15 and Psalm 110, and you can keep your fingers there just so that you can flip back and forth. You can also see part of the scripture on the handout if you would like to refer to that. But turn to these passages. Let's read them together, and then we'll look at them very closely. And as you're turning, I want to state the general point of my talk up front. The ultimate point that I'd like to make today is that Genesis 3.15 and Psalm 110 are indeed related. Psalm 110 consciously refer, refers to Genesis 3.15 to convey a specific theological message. And this message is that the triumph described in Psalm 110 is not simply political, 
so as to refer only to the human enemies in this world. The triumph described in Psalm 110 is holistic. It represents God's victory over any and every expression of enmity that exists. And this enmity, which at its core originated in Genesis chapter 3. So let's take a look at these passages and then we'll analyze them and we'll study them together. Genesis 3, 15, of course, Genesis 3 is the account of the fall. And in this account, God curses the serpent. And in this curse, God announces the inception of enmity. And I'll take a look. I'll read just verse 15. Uh, God is speaking to the serpent. And this is what he says. I will set enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall strike you on the head and you shall strike him on the heel. Now with this in mind, let's go straight to Psalm 110. And I want to read Psalm 110 in its entirety. Psalm 110 is a Davidic Psalm. And as I said, it describes the triumph of the Messiah over the enemies. And this is what Psalm 110 says, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I set your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter Kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. As we look at these two passages, I would like for us to, I would like to bring out five elements with respect to these two passages that demonstrate the intertextuality between Psalm 110 and Genesis 3.15. Now, these five elements are related to biblical exegesis. So I will be asking questions such as, how do I read and how do I interpret the Bible? Um, How do I demonstrate or how do I determine if two or more passages have an intertextual relationship with one another? And with this, I do confess that this will be a dense talk. Because of this, I hope that it'll be a shorter talk. But I do truly hope that it'll be a rewarding uh, discussion for you. And again, to restate the main point of this talk, what the five elements will show is that Psalm 110 consciously refers to Genesis 3.15. And it does this with a purpose. That purpose is to make sure that we understand that the triumph over enmity and over all of the enemies discussed in Psalm 110 is not simply referring to the human enemies, but it's referring to enmity holistically, enmity that originated in Genesis chapter 3. So as we look at this, as we look at these five elements, let's consider these two passages in detail. The first element 
to show this intertextuality is the distinctive language in these two passages, specifically in Psalm 110.1 and Genesis 3.15. And you can see this on the handout on number one. When we compare the language of Psalm 110.1 and Genesis 3.15, we see that these passages use language that appears nowhere else except in these two passages. Genesis 3.15 says, I will set enmity between you and the woman. And then Psalm 110.1 says nearly the same thing until I set your enemies a footstool for your feet. So you have language that is similar and almost identical. Now, in addition to this, there is a grammatical similarity. And this is just a detailed grammatical point. Um, Genesis 3.15 puts the word enmity as the direct object of I will set. And then Psalm 110 also puts the word your enemies as the direct object of I will set. So we have remarkably similar language. We have remarkably similar grammar. Now, the significance of all of this is that this language and this grammar is distinctive. It's restricted to these two passages. Now, you may say the word enemy, the word set, I mean, these words appear all over the Bible, right? And this is true. These words individually are common throughout the Bible. But these words never appear together in this grammatical construction anywhere else except in these two passages. So it's as if Psalm 1 is saying, when I use these two words in this grammatical construction, I want you to think of Genesis 3.15 right now. Because I know that there's no other appearance of this phrase in the entire Bible. And in doing this, it creates this link back to Genesis 3.15. Now, let's go further. What else strengthens this relationship between these passages is the way that these words are presented. And I mean by this, who says these words and to whom are these words said? First of all, in both of these passages, the speaker is the very same speaker. And it's God, God himself. In Genesis 3.15, Yahweh God addresses the serpent and he says those words. And in Psalm 110.1, it is Yahweh who addresses my Lord, Adoni, the Messiah. So in Psalm 110, if you think about it, God is speaking and he is essentially referring to the words that he had said much, much earlier in the garden that we have recorded in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And it's as if he's saying, remember how I said those words about enmity in Genesis three? Well, now I'm saying that this enmity and all of the enemies will be destroyed. So God is referring to himself to make a second point related to enmity. And it's also important to note here who receives the message from God, because this also creates a link to Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3, the recipient is the serpent, namely the enemy par excellence, right? Satan. And in Psalm 110.1, the recipient is my Lord, Adoni, the representative of God par excellence. It's the Messiah. 
So the two individuals are theological adversaries. So what we have here then is that in both of these passages, the same speaker, God, uses similar language, uses the same grammar to deliver a theological message that is related to enmity, and he addresses two really important individuals, theological enemies, the ultimate enemy, the serpent, Satan, and then the ultimate conqueror, the Messiah. And taking note of these similarities demonstrates that for us that there is this intertextual relationship between the two passages that, and that they must be read together. Now, I want you to look at these verses carefully. And if you are looking at these verses carefully, you might once again object to me and you might say, hold on a second. What about the fact that the words enemy and enmity are actually different words? They're not the same word, right? In Genesis 3.15, it says, I will set enmity. And in Psalm 110.1, it says, I will set your enemies. So they are different words. This is true. But this doesn't pose an insurmountable problem for us because there's an inherent logic between enmity and enemies. Enemies exhibit enmity, right? So the two words are logically related. And we can see this in the scriptures. You don't have to go there, but Numbers 35 describes what a murderer is. And in describing it, this term, Numbers 35 says that the murderer is an enemy who acts out of enmity. So it uses both of these words as if they have a logical relationship, which in fact they do. So despite the fact that we have different words here, the same root and the same inherent logic between enemy and enmity sustain this link between Genesis 3.15 and Psalm 110. Thinking about this then, what we have in the end is that the distinctive language and the way that this distinctive language is presented, it points to an intertextual relationship between these two passages. Now, this is not the only reference to Genesis 3.15 in Psalm 110. There are other allusions as well. And the fact that there are other allusions actually further strengthens this overall intertextual relationship between these two passages because it shows that the psalmist, David, was thinking about Genesis 3.15 more generally as he was composing Psalm 110. And this takes us to the second element, the intertextual volume between Psalm 110 and Genesis 3.15. This is the second point on the handout, the intertextual volume. When we look at the rest of the psalm, we see that there are at least at least three other allusions to Genesis 3.15. First, there is the image of subjugating the enemy under foot, under the feet of the conqueror. Psalm 110 says, I will set your enemies your footstool. So we have this image under the feet of the conquerors. And then Genesis 3.15 says, you shall strike his heel, which is part of the foot, and he shall strike your head, presumably with the foot. 
thus again evoking this image of crushing underfoot. That's the first similarity. Then the second one is that there's this general image of striking the enemy, warfare. Psalm 110.5 says, He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Again, conveying this image of smashing the enemies. And then we see this similar image of striking in Genesis 3.15. You shall strike his heel while he shall strike your head. And then the third parallel here is that there's a specific linguistic reference to Genesis chapter 3 of crushing the head of the enemy. Psalm 110.6, take a look at this one carefully. Psalm 110.6 says, he, Adonai, or the Lord, will shatter chiefs. Now, the Hebrew word for chiefs is actually head, the head, rosh. He will shatter the head is what the Hebrew says. And this, of course, recalls Genesis 3.15. He shall strike you on the head, referring to the serpent. Now, when you look at Psalm 110 on its own, the head is, it's rather an enigmatic um, reference to a sovereign power that governs over all of the earth, because this is what it's referring to in this verse. But when you see that this reference actually alludes back to Genesis chapter 3, you realize that this head in Psalm 110 is related to the head in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So it's far greater than merely this human realm of sovereignty. It's a reference to the head that was responsible for the enmity that entered into this world. And God is now saying in Psalm 110 that he is going to crush this head. Looking at this now, when we consider the general context of Psalm 110, when we see that there is this volume, multiplicity of references between Psalm 110 and Genesis 3, we recognize that the author was thinking intertextually and that he had Genesis 3.15 in mind when he was composing Psalm 110. But this is not it. There's another element that suggests this intertextuality. And this is number three. This is the thematic relationship between the passages. The theme in both of these passages relates to enmity in a variety of specific ways. And let me just point to three of these parallels. First, we see that these passages speak of the beginning of enmity on the one hand and the end of enemies or enmity on the other hand. Genesis 3.15 announces the inception of enmity. And Psalm 110 assumes the existence of this enmity because we have a reference to enemies a number of times. And then it announces the subjugation of, this, of these enemies. So the end of enmity. That's the first parallel. The second parallel that relates to the theme of both of these passages is the extent of, these, of this enmity. Genesis 3.15 predicts the widespread extent of enmity. It says that this enmity will be between the serpent and the woman. So this is one realm of enmity. And then it continues to say that this enmity will exist between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. So for generations to come. So a plurality of enemies or the expression of enmity. So a much broader realm of enmity. And when you look at Psalm 110, 
we see this psalm depicting this widespread enmity by pointing to the plurality of various kinds of enemies on a global scale. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, I will set your enemies, a plurality of enemies, a footstool for your feet. Verse 2 also says a similar idea here. Rule in the midst of your enemies, a plurality of enemies. Verse 5 of the psalm refers to the plurality of kings. He will shatter kings. Verse 6 speaks of the plurality of nations. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. So here, these passages relate to each other in that Genesis 3.15 predicts, and then Psalm 110 describes this extent of enmity. And then the third parallel in theme is that one passage predicts the, pa- uh, the battle, and then the second passage describes the battle of enmity, the violence that is implied within enmity. If you look at Genesis 3.15, once again, it predicts this enmity by, saying, by expressing a, an idea of violence that will be included in enmity. The word enmity, of course, itself implies this, but when you look at the last part of verse 15, he shall strike your head and you shall strike his heel is another way of saying that there's going to be violence. And if you look at Psalm 110, it describes this violence by using words like in verse 5, he will shatter kings or he will smash kings. Verse 6, he will shatter the head over the wide earth or also the first part of verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, which is a result of violence. It's a result of the battle. So again, the passages relate to each other thematically in that they both speak of the violent effects of enmity. In the end, then, the theme of enmity and this theme of warfare is common to both of these passages. And so when we see these similarities, the distinctive language, the plurality of allusions to Genesis 3, And then this common theological theme between passages conclude that there is an intertextual relationship between the two passages and that David intended for Psalm 110 to be read in light of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But there is more evidence to show that the psalmist was thinking intertextually, evidence that is broader in nature. And this is our fourth element, the intertextual character of the psalm the intertextual character of the psalm. When we look at the psalm as a whole, we see that the psalm refers not only to Genesis 3, but to other parts of Genesis, and in this case, specifically Genesis 14. Look, Psalm 110, verse 4. It says here, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek, as a king and a priest, appears in only one other part of the Old Testament, and that's Genesis 14. So when David includes this verse, he's clearly thinking of Genesis chapter 14. Now you say, so what? And how does this have to do with Genesis chapter 3? Well, this means that David is not writing this psalm in the vacuum. He is writing the psalm as revelation 
but also as revelation that he received in light of the scripture that he has studied and that he is familiar with. So at some points, David is thinking of Genesis 14 in this Psalm. And at other points, David is thinking of Genesis 3. And we must recognize this. We must read this Psalm in light of the passages that David is referring to. We must recognize when he's referring to Genesis 3.15. And we must recognize when he's referring to Genesis 14. And we must preach this Psalm accordingly. Now, with all of this information, I would like to ask one more question. Do we see Psalm 110, 3.15 read together where this intertextuality is recognized in any of the ancient texts that we have available to us? Do any ancient texts recognize this intertextual relationship between Psalm 110 and Genesis 3.15? And the answer to this question is yes, definitely. And this is the fifth element. The combination or the correlation of these two passages within the New Testament. Specific 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 16. Both of these passages, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 16, take the content of Psalm 110 and Genesis 3, and they read them as theologically involved, one with the other. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15 first. And this is on your handout as well under uh, number 5.1. In 1 Corinthians 15, the intertextual relationship between Psalm 110 and the general context of Genesis 3 is presupposed by Paul. It's presupposed by him as the foundation of his discussion of Christ's victory over death. In this passage, Paul first alludes to Genesis 3 by referring to Adam and to death. And this is in verse 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. He says, for as by a man came death, and then he goes on. Well, this is a clear reference to this chapter 3, where Adam and death are uh, described. And then if we missed this point in verse 22, he specifies this and he says, for as in Adam, all die. So he is clearly thinking here of Genesis chapter three. Now, after making this allusion to Genesis three in two verses, Paul proceeds to give a clear citation of Psalm 110.1, specifically in reference to Christ and his triumph over death. And this is in verse 25. Paul writes in verse 25, for he, Christ, must reign until he, that is God, has set all his enemies under his feet. And of course, this is a clear reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I set your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Paul takes Genesis 3, he takes Psalm 110, and he brings them together in the context of 1 Corinthians 15 to show that the death and the enmity that came into existence in Genesis 3 will be destroyed by Christ as the fulfillment of Psalm 110. And then we see a similar situation happening in Romans 16, verse 20. But in Romans 16, 20, it's actually even more precise because here it offers a combined reading specifically of Genesis 3.15 and Psalm 110.1. Now, Romans 16.20 following, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
So on the one hand, we see Genesis 3.15 in this passage in the image of Satan being crushed, right? We'll soon crush Satan. Satan is the reference to the serpent. And under your feet is the image of crushing. He shall strike your head and you shall strike your heel. But here the Messiah will strike your head. So this is Paul's reference specifically to Genesis 3.15. Now at the same time, when we look at this specific language in this verse, we see that uh, the language that Paul uses to describe the crushing under your feet, it actually doesn't come from Genesis chapter three, but it comes specific from Psalm 110.1. Romans 16.20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, this word, Feet doesn't appear in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, the word is heel. There's an implication that there's a foot in there, but the actual word is heel. The specific word foot or feet comes from Psalm 110. Until I set your enemies a footstool for your feet. So while Romans 16 takes the image of crushing Satan from Genesis 3.15, Paul takes the language from Psalm 110 verse 1. So what Paul is doing here is he's taking Genesis 3.15 and Psalm 110.1 and he's bringing them together in Romans 16 to describe how of them are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And then the general context of Romans 16 shows how the church is involved in this process as well. So when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15. And when he wrote Romans 16, he was reflecting on both of these passages. Genesis chapter 3.15 and Psalm 110.1. And what this means is that this intertextual relationship about which I'm speaking to you today is actually already present in the New Testament in the writings of Paul. He is the first to identify this. Now, let me conclude this discussion by saying that when we read Psalm 110 and when we look at the messianic promise in it, we must recognize that it is built on Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The point it seeks to me that the triumph over the enemies is not simply political. It is cosmic. It represents triumph over enmity as a whole, enmity as it originated in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And when you recognize this intertextual relationship between the passages, you then recognize that Psalm 110 is offering an ultimate solution to the problem of enmity in Genesis chapter 3. Psalm 110 promises to undo that which was done in Genesis chapter 3. Thinking about this truth, let us pray and praise God for revealing this to us. So let us go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we look deeply into your, we look at the specifics of each of the words and the grammar that you used to reveal this word to us. Lord, we are left in awe, standing in amazement at your power, at your wisdom, at your love, at your sacrifice for us. 
Lord. And as we think about the fact that from the very beginning at the fall, you already had a plan of redemption for us. And then that you continue to reinforce this redemption and to reveal it to us throughout your prophets and throughout your saints. Lord, we worship you and we thank you for this. Lord, I pray that as we walk away from this talk, that we would see how great of a God you are and how kind and gracious of a God you are. Lord, help us to love you. Help us to be faithful to you. Lord, I thank you and I praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.